John chapter 17. I did last Sunday an introductory study to the chapter. Uh, it is the longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus in terms of not just a reference that he prayed, but an actual record of what he prayed. Uh, the setting is important. It's a special setting. It happened the night of what we call the Last Supper. It's at the very end of the Last Supper that he prays in this way, just before they leave the upper room and head out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and to uh, pray in the grove of olive trees that we know as Gethsemane. And um, as he's praying, he's, he's, of course, directing his focus to his heavenly Father, but he's choosing to pray, not in private, but he's choosing to pray. Uh, for instance, he could have saved this prayer to the, to the few moments later when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and when he took three of his disciples, leaving nine of them, or excuse me, uh, eight of them, um, in the outer perimeter of the garden, he, and took the three to the, to the inner area of the garden, and then even going a distance from them. He could have saved this prayer for that time when he was more practically alone, but he chose to pray this in front of his disciples, and I believe he did so in this sense. Um, I asked you to turn to chapter 17, but just for a moment, turn back to chapter 11. And I want to read a reference to an earlier, briefer prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed and how John uh, records Jesus describing why he prayed the way he prayed in front of his disciples or in the hearing of his disciples. Um, in verse 41, this is of course the circumstance of uh, the raising of Lazarus. They're at the gravesite, uh, the tomb of Lazarus. And in verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I, I like this about the Lord and it's, it's what theologians call a principle of condensation where he is condescending to, to us and for our benefit, meaning these are things that, that are private, in a sense, between him and the Father. These are things he could have just prayed in the Father's hearing, but he chose to pray them out loud and in the hearing of those that needed to learn something about him and about his relationship to the Father and about his own heart's perspective and priorities and concerns because otherwise we wouldn't know these specific things about him and about the Father. So I believe John 17 and the prayer there, the longer, more extended prayer, is being prayed in a similar fashion as this shorter prayer at the tomb of Lazarus. So let's head back to John 17. And I described it last week in the introduction as one of the, this specific section of it, of the prayer that's immediately ahead of us, is one of the most theologically dense sections in all of God's word. Even though it's a prayer, uh, it's something that I'm going to try to call attention to throughout our study through John 17, and that is that uh, Jesus is, is praying 
uh, in a theologically substantive way. And he's not doing so in order to impress the hearers. You know, there have been times, especially in, uh, in listening to leaders pray and pastors at times praying where uh, there's lots and lots of theological content that's kind of woven into the prayer. And uh, that's appropriate, but there have been times in my experience where it, it felt a little bit like the one praying was uh, intending uh, as much to reach the mind and heart and ears of the Heavenly Father, uh, m intending to impress the people that were listening to the prayer. I don't think that, of course, the Lord Jesus is doing that at all as he's praying here, but nevertheless, what he's praying is theologically rich. And so I'd mentioned we're going to slow down and take our time with this. And while we're tackling now the first section, which is the first five verses, and those are the only verses I'll be reading of the prayer today, uh, for our actual study today, I think we'll get no farther than verse one. So let's read from John 17, verses one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right, so I had mentioned that what Jesus prays gives us a, a, a unique level of insight into his mind, into his heart, into the plan of God, and the purpose that was the life priority of the Lord Jesus. And this first section certainly uh, displays that for us. It starts in a, in a practical way just to help us to follow a, a progression of what's going on that night. Uh, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, there's, a, there's both a, uh, a larger context to that brief description, there's an immediate context. They both have some significance, so I wanted to mention them both. The larger context is, it's a reference, as John is describing, when Jesus had spoken these words, what are these words that he's referring to? I believe he's talking about when, if you head back over for just a moment, all the way back to chapter 13, When in verse, in verse 8, as Jesus has risen at the beginning of the supper and taken off his outer clothing, wrapped himself in a servant's towel, bent down and did for his disciples what they should have offered to do for him, and had overlooked, which was to wash his feet. 
This was, of course, a, a necessary expression of practical hospitality that every household practiced in those days because, generally speaking, people wore sandals, their feet being exposed to the elements. The streets they walked through weren't paved streets and they weren't clean streets. And there wasn't a, a garbage service like in our modern day society today. And so whenever there was refuse from the house, it was generally thrown out into the street and the hope was that the dogs would eventually come along and dispose of it. But in the meantime, you're walking through that in your sandaled feet. And now you come into someone's home and the home is meant to be kept somewhat clean. And so how do you deal with that uh, incrustation of that gunk that you've um, accumulated on your feet just from walking through a fallen world in that practical expression of it? And the way that was done was uh, as, as people entered into the home, they would stop and wash their feet before um, moving on into the rest of the life of the home. And as Jesus now is bending down to wash the disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter, and Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And this begins the, what, what theologians later call the Last Supper Discourse. From this point, Jesus begins to, begins to teach his disciples using the practical format of the exchange over foot washing to teach them a deeper lesson about what it means to truly love one another in the new relationship, the new covenant relationship of the family of God created by the Lord's saving work in the life of each one of the disciples and the shared new family relationship that is formed from that shared salvation experience. And so Jesus begins to teach in chapter 13. He continues to teach his disciples in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. And then we get to chapter 17, verse one, and we read these words when Jesus had spoken these words. So this has now concluded the, the last supper discourse, the entire block of teaching. He covers a lot of different subjects in that last block of teaching. But there's also a, a near focus, an ending to that discourse that John is referencing here. And that goes back to the, if you look back in chapter 16, verse 25, the very last section of that teaching discourse, I think is in particular focus here as a buildup to the prayer of John 17. So I just wanna read from verse 25 how Jesus ends his teaching to his disciples before he begins to pray. John 16, 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. We'll notice in, in John 17, he, the very first words out of the Lord's mouth as he's praying to his heavenly father is, Father, the hour has come. So Jesus is very much focused chronology-wise on a specific hour of time. And he's referencing that even to his disciples before he begins to pray. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. There's gonna be a shift in discipleship teaching from before this hour to after this hour. And what I'm gonna be 
uh, describing is that the hour he's talking about is primarily referencing his death on the cross, but also includes the culmination of his death on the cross, which is, of course, the resurrection, and ultimately even he's referencing the ascension. But here, there's a dividing line that's going to change everything in the way that he's relating to his disciples. That dividing line is before the cross and after the cross. And of course, what the cross signifies for you and me is salvation. Without the sacrifice in the cross, there's no ultimately saving work that will change and transform us as disciples of the Lord. And so prior to the cross, they have a true relationship with the Lord, and it is a saved relationship, but it is not yet a new birth relationship. And as a result, he teaches them differently before the cross than he does after the cross. So he says, I will, the, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, meaning from the cross forward, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. So there, now he identifies there's a new relationship, a new level of relationship that the disciples are going to enter into, not just with him. Yes, they're going to have a new and, and transformed relationship with the Lord, but they are also going to enjoy for the first time a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father that's going to be very similar to the personal relationship with the Heavenly Father that the Son of God has always enjoyed. So he says, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now, this is referencing the hour that he refers to in John 17, 1, now... I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you were speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. I, I think there's a, a, a hint. It's hard sometimes to read tone into text and to know exactly how the disciples were responding to him, but this is how I read it. I, I read a note, just a tinge of frustration on the part of the disciples. Jesus has been teaching them figuratively for three years. An example of figurative speech teaching is what we would call the parables. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a story. It has spiritual meaning, it has spiritual content, it has spiritual principles, but it's, it's not exactly plain. You're going to have to think about it. You're gonna have to discern it. And I, I hear when they say to him now, um, uh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech, almost like we've really wanted this, we've been waiting for this, we've been hoping for this, and now we're glad that you're telling us plainly. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. Did, did the Lord Jesus need anyone to question him before this night and before this moment? <laughs> he didn't need anyone to question him, but in their minds, they were needing to question him because they weren't quite sure, but now they're saying, okay, now we're sure. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Again, the reference to this special and specific hour. 
The hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, and then we transition into the actual prayer. But there's one last, in verse 1, there's one last practical description of something that just kind of sets the scene for us and helps us to understand if we, if we rightly stop and think about the implications of this brief description, helps us to understand something about prayer, something about God, and something about our relationship with God now in the fullness of a saved, new birth, new covenant relationship with God. And it's a very brief description. The description is this. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is a, this is a detail about what we would call posture in prayer. Now, <clears throat> there are many different postures in prayer that are described in Scripture, and they're all valid. There's, not, there's nothing in Scripture that, that weights one posture in significance and in spirituality above another posture. For instance, if I said to you, what's the number one best posture in prayer? You might be inclined to say, what? On your knees. Now, is there anything wrong with praying on your knees? Are there people in the Bible that prayed on their knees? Absolutely. Is it a valid expression of prayer to get on your knees? And why would we ever get on our knees if we were to pray? It's a, it's a practical reminder to us and a practical expression using our physicality to just signify to the Lord to whom we're praying that I am humbled before you. You're greater than me. I'm lesser than you. I'm getting on my knees to express my awareness of the difference between you and me in this relationship and this communication in the relationship that we call prayer. That's a very good way to posture yourself in prayer. But there are those in Scripture, and the Lord Jesus is among them, there are those in Scripture who prayed standing up. There are those who prayed sitting down without getting on their knees. There are those in Scripture who prostrated themselves, li literally laying out flat on the floor as they prayed. Uh, there are those, including the Lord Jesus, who prayed while in motion, walking from one location to another. Um, of course, they didn't have the same kind of vehicles that we have today. But I would imagine if they did, that Jesus would have made use of them and he, we would have seen him praying like I often do when I'm driving from one location to another. So there are many different postures in prayer. And only one detail is highlighted here. It's a detail about his eyes rather than his knees. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Uh, there's a couple of different ways to read this. I think one is much more likely than the other. All right, I'm going to 
Some of you in the back aren't gonna be able to see this, but I'm gonna give you an example of the first one. I could be with my head tilted down, starting to pray, and I could lift my eyes by not moving my head, but just glancing upward. Can you, can you see the difference in what I'm doing here? Do you think that's what Jesus did? Because we have a tradition in Christianity, and a lot of tradition in church circles, and it's even become kind of a saying. You don't hear me use this saying, and I don't use it intentionally, but it is very common in many churches that I've attended over the years and various other kinds of church meetings. Have you ever heard this saying? Every head bowed, every eye closed. And then the person that's directing the congregation in that way will begin to pray only after they keep their head unbowed and their eyes open to see everybody else closing their eyes and bowing their heads. So the reason I say this is, you know, I think there's some benefit to kind of disabusing ourselves of some of the traditions that are more, not necessarily evil things or bad things, but they're more traditional things than they are biblical things. There's no place anywhere in scripture Even in the book of Acts, where we see lots of examples of believers praying uh, anywhere in the epistles or, or anywhere in the Old Testament, in the many, many expressions of prayer that there are in the Old Testament, where you read this phrase, you can, you can put it in your search bar in your concordance on your, your Bible software. There is no single place anywhere in scripture where any leader said, every head bowed, every eye closed, now let's pray. Uh, Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven, but I don't think he bowed his head before he began to pray. So if he didn't bow his head and then just lift his eyes in an upward glance, what does that imply about what his head was doing as his eyes were being directed to heaven? He probably tilted his head upward. I say probably because the text doesn't specifically tell us that, so I don't want to make too much of it, and I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but that's what I think it's describing. I think Jesus stopped at the end of his teaching time where his head was tilted toward the disciples that he was teaching, and he signaled that he was done speaking to them for the evening, and now he was going to speak to his heavenly Father before officially leaving the upper room and heading out to the Mount of Olives. And he did so by moving his head away from them, focused on them, and lifting his head toward heaven. And as he did so, he's looking up, and his eyes are closed or open. They're most definitely open. So I just want you to catch the detail that number one, the face of the Lord Jesus is directed toward the ceiling because they didn't leave the room. Believe it or not, there's a couple of commentaries that think that they had to have left the room because he was looking up and he wouldn't have been looking at the ceiling. Trust me, they hadn't left the room yet. Look at, again, chapter 18. One chapter later. This is at the end of the prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words... That's the words of the prayer that we're studying. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. 
That's the Garden of Gethsemane. When it says he went out with his disciples, out of where? Out of the upper room. So they were in the upper room when he finished his teaching, lifted his face toward the ceiling, and with his eyes open, began to pray. Now, is there any detail anywhere in chapter 17 which says at a certain point he closed his eyes? No. So I'm just going to tell you, John 17, it's not that long of a prayer. I read it last week. It's, it's long for all of the other, in comparison to any of the other recorded prayers of the Lord Jesus. And it's actually long for most of the prayers of the Bible. But it's fairly short, and it only takes just a few minutes to pray this and to read through it as if we were praying it. And for the duration of this, his face was tilted toward the ceiling and his eyes remained open. Now, the only reason I'm emphasizing that, well, actually there's a couple of reasons, but the first reason that I'm emphasizing that is just there are some believers, maybe it's none of you, who have the idea if there's prayer happening, you're supposed to close your eyes first. Right? I mean, it's just a tradition. Some believers won't pray unless they first close their eyes. They just feel, I know, they just feel awkward to pray with their eyes open. Now, I'm just asking you, you, you can show your hand, you cannot show your hand, I won't make too much of it, it's not that big of a deal. <clears throat> but have you ever prayed with your eyes open? Good. Is it the only way to pray? Are you, are you blowing it if you do close your eyes? No. So I'm just saying, you can pray with your eyes closed, you can pray with your eyes open, but he chose to pray with his eyes open and his face tilted toward the ceiling. Now, was he staring at something on the ceiling? No. Where were his eyes directed? He lifted his eyes to heaven. Now, there are some takeaway principles from this. And I think they're important. And I think uh, we, should, um, we should understand the implications of this very brief description, but very important description at the same time. Number one, it tells me that to the Lord Jesus, heaven is a real place. Not just some fantasy concept, some ethereal, undefinable, fantasy concept. It's a real place, and he's praying to a real person who is his heavenly father. And while that real person who is his heavenly father is not spatially um, limited to the real place of heaven, that is where he chooses to localize the manifestation of his presence. So the father is not only located in heaven but the father is located in heaven and the lord is praying to him in a real personal interaction of communication and he's praying like heaven is a real place and he therefore tilts his head upward why does he tilt his head upward rather than downward because heaven is above the earth okay now i want you to i know this is going to maybe seem like i'm I'm, I'm uh, writing this too hard, but I'm, I'm dealing with traditional perspectives. 
that limit some believers' heart comprehension of spiritual principles of our relationship to the Father, our relationship to the Lord who sits upon the throne, and our relationship to heaven as a real place. All right, so we happen to be located in Los Angeles, generally speaking, Southern California, USA, very specific point on the globe. If you and I were to pray like Jesus, would we lift our heads, our faces toward the ceiling like he did? Or would we turn our heads downward? Because he was praying on almost the opposite side of the globe from where we're located. So if heaven's a real place, and I believe it is, I'm convinced that it is, and he was looking up that direction, spatially speaking, and we're now on the other side of the planet, almost, not exactly, like completely on the other side, but mostly on the other side of the planet, from Jerusalem. You know, if you wanna get out a globe later and check me on this, trust me, it takes a long time to get on a plane and fly to Jerusalem. It's because it's nearly on the other side of the globe. He's praying from Jerusalem. He is lifting his face and looking up in this direction. I'm putting him on top of the globe. And we're nearly on the other side. If we lift our face, we're going to be looking in almost the opposite direction, are we not? Are, are we looking toward heaven or are we looking toward the other place? I mean, are you tracking with me? So what does this teach us about heaven? Heaven is not spatially limited in the sense of it's only one of the four directions on our compass. Anywhere that you happen to be located on the surface of this planet, if you lift your face toward the sky, or if you're inside like we are, lift your face, and like Jesus was that night, toward the ceiling, and you have your eyes open, but you're looking upward, you are still looking, if you have spiritual apprehension and comprehension, you're looking toward heaven. Because heaven is above Jerusalem, and heaven is above Los Angeles at the same time. That tells us that heaven is what? Smaller or bigger than the earth? Much bigger. It encompasses the entire planet. And more than that, let's just say, and I don't wanna to get too much into science fiction here, but let's just say we live in Star Trek days. And now I'm on a starship and I've traveled to another planet and I'm looking up from that planet toward heaven. Am I still safe to be looking toward heaven? Wherever I might be located in the known universe, the physical universe. I'm just saying this, heaven is bigger than the entire universe because it's, it's spiritually above it all. And don't think in terms of, well, okay, now let me try to calculate the dimensions of heaven. You can try to do that, but it's a, you know, you're not gonna be able to accomplish it. The point is that I don't want us to get locked into physical comprehension principles as we're thinking about a real but spiritual reality. It's a real place, a tangible, actual real place, 
but it is ultimately a spiritual place which in all of its expression is above anywhere on planet earth. All right, I think I've um, emphasized that enough. Turn, uh, keep your place in John 17. Turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the second reason why I believe Jesus lifted his eyes, which required lifting his face to heaven and toward his heavenly Father. I'm going to read one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It's the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's part of a much larger context. The whole context is important and helpful. It's talking about the difference between our old covenant relationship with the Lord and our new covenant relationship with the Lord. And here in verse 18 is kind of the culmination of this section. And Paul writes this, and we all with unveiled face not, not just the Lord Jesus now, we're included in this in our relationship to heaven. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. And where is the Lord located? Yes, he's here with us, but more and greater than that, he is enthroned upon the throne in heaven itself. And so as we lift our faces to heaven, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The emphasis here is on lifting our face to behold the glory of the Lord. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he immediately begins in these next few verses to focus the personal part of this prayer Remember I said in the first five verses, the Lord last week in the introduction, the Lord is praying primarily for himself. He will in verses two and three reference our being saved and how that has come about. But the priority of these first five verses is a personal interaction between the Son and the Father. Then in verse six and beyond, he begins to pray for his 11 faithful disciples and then eventually folds us into that prayer and includes us in all that he prayed for them, as we saw in our, in our overview study last week. Here, in these first few verses, as he lifts his eyes, he lifts his face to heaven, and he is beholding, because he's going to start first praying about glory. He's going to start praying about his own glory, and he's going to start praying about the Father's glory, the interaction between those two glories, and how they are forever entwined and connected. And we will... Lord willing, next week, start to focus on those deeper principles of the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. But for today, what I want us to see out of that part is that Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the nature of his interaction, his relationship with the Father, which is a face-to-face -face relationship. And the reason I read the 2 Corinthians 3 passage is we all now are included in that kind of relationship with both 
the Father and the Son only because of the saving work of the Son that has already been accomplished in our hearts. But now that it has been accomplished, we enjoy, if we comprehend it, a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord who sits upon the throne and with his Father who sat him there. A face-to-face -face relationship is a special relationship in Scripture. I don't want to take the time, I just don't have the time to go back and develop this, but there were only a precious few in the Old Covenant interaction between the people of God and God himself that were privileged to have what is described as a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord. Moses was one of those. He, like the friend of God, he enjoyed a face-to-face -face relationship with God. And there are a precious few others, like King David, who enjoyed such a, a privileged relationship. But all of us who are born of God's Spirit in the New Covenant and are now considered true family members of the family of God, we are privileged to enjoy that same kind of relationship, a face-to-face -face relationship with the Father and with the Son. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven because he has a face-to-face -face relationship with him. And even though the disciples had not yet entered into the fullness of that, they were about to, but they had not yet entered into the fullness of that. Jesus is displaying that for their benefit and ultimately for ours as well. Now, the last detail I want to mention about that before we move on to the rest of verse 1 is that I mentioned that heaven, in a sense, overshadows all of the earth, is greater than the earth, is, it's, it's above any location on the earth, and yet at the same time, as great as heaven is in relationship with the earth, one of the things that's being emphasized here by the practical actions of the Lord Jesus is that, and I love this, heaven is accessible from any spot on earth. Meaning, wherever you go, wherever you are, heaven is immediately accessible. You think Caleb and Abigail were um, blessed to understand how accessible heaven and the throne of God were for them last night in the middle of the night. And I was as well as I was praying for Annika, and I'm sure you were. Heaven is accessible. It's not like some hidden location that you need some kind of secret code to be able to unlock the door and to be able to gain access to that throne room. And he prays, as I emphasized earlier for the duration of this prayer, with open eyes because why? Open eyes see reality. That's what open eyes are for. You close your eyes, you know, you can just invent anything you want in the privacy of your mind. But when your eyes are open, you're looking at what is there and what is real. And even though heaven is not physically visible from earth, Jesus was looking into heaven knowing the reality of it, knowing it in a far greater way than any of us have ever yet personally experienced because that's where he came from. He's been there and knows the reality of it. And so as he prays, he prays with those open eyes, perceiving 
and comprehending and believing and trusting in the fullness of the reality of it. All right, the next detail of verse one, and I'm going to save the emphasis on glory for our next study. But the other detail that we have to emphasize before we leave verse one is this. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, and these are the first words out of his mouth, and in a sense, therefore, they become the most important words, the words that we dare not miss in their implications. Father, the hour has come. Now, the first thing is, I want to ask, do you think the Father knew that the hour had come? before Jesus said these words. I want to remind us, I think we're all familiar with it, but these are familiar words from the introduction that the Lord Jesus gave in his discipleship teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, just before he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer, but is technically more the disciples' prayer. This is what he said in verse, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. That means don't talk a lot when you pray. And whatever you do, make sure your words have some substance instead of just speaking empty phrases. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles here just represent people that don't know the Lord. Are you aware that, pe not everybody, but many people that do not know the Lord do pray? Hindus pray. Buddhists pray. Many other world religions pray, but they don't know the Lord in the saving new birth way that you and I are privileged to know the Lord. And when they pray, they, they don't know better, and so they think prayer they think of prayer as more of a mechanism than a relationship. Sadly, too many Christian believers think of prayer as a mechanism rather than a relationship. But the Lord Jesus doesn't want his disciples that understand the principles of a true relationship with God to function in that way when they pray. I mean, so much so that you've, and I've used this example before, have you ever heard of a, uh, a Buddhist prayer flag or a prayer wheel? Like in, on Mount Everest, if you go to climb Mount Everest, not that I ever have, but I've seen videos of it, and I've certainly read about it, um, there, are, there is, is at base camp a permanent line that is stretched from one high point to a lower point at the base camp. And there are prayer flags, Buddhist prayer flags, that are tied to this line. And it is always windy on the slopes of Mount Everest, even at base camp, always windy. It's never not windy. And so as the wind blows, these flags blow. And the way in the Buddhist worldview they have constituted these flags is they believe every time the flag flaps, a prayer is ascending to wherever prayers go in order to be heard and answered. And so they create these prayer flag lines 
in the windiest place that they know to construct it so that every, and there are, there's dozens of these flags, so in their minds, every second this thing is flapping several times and there are dozens of them and they're all flapping and so look at all those prayers that are going up on our behalf prayer wheels work the same way there's a wheel with with these these little prayers that are attached to the edge of the wheel and as they spin the wheel like wheel of fortune uh, as they spin the wheel each time the 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 specific prayer flag or the little prayer note crosses the top then another prayer has just gone into action so jesus teaches his disciples he says don't be like that don't be ignorant i mean it's all with good intentions those people think that they're really doing something of spiritual significance but it's just empty and he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here's the, here's the challenge. That's a true spiritual principle of our relationship to God in prayer. Here's the challenge. Well, if he knows what I need before I ask him, then I don't really even need to pray, do I? Well, yes, you do, and I'm glad you drew that conclusion. That's the right conclusion. I do too. But in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come, knowing full well that the Father already knew the hour had come. In fact, in our study in the book of Acts chapter 1, we discovered that there are some timing things that only the Father knows. And he has reserved and kept back the timing of it even from the son himself. So the father certainly knows the hour had come. And yet Jesus said the words out loud, father, the hour has come as if the father didn't know the hour had come. So what's going on here? Is he wasting time in prayer? Now, if anybody didn't waste time in prayer, it was the Lord Jesus. I could tell you stories of experiences of being with people who wasted time in prayer. I mean, I, I won't tell any names and I won't tell the whole story. It's, it's uh, a laugh out loud level story, but this is from years and years ago in this church when we were in a home church meeting and um, a young brother who meant well began to pray and got lost in his prayer uh, describing to the Lord things that were going on in his life and actually stopped praying. He was just writing a diary in prayer in front of all of us and forgot we were there and forgot where he was and he just was going on and on. You know, Lord, how I did this and then yesterday and I had this for lunch and, and it was just, and, and 40 minutes later, he was still going with no signs that he was going to stop. I think you might have been there, Tim. It wasn't Tim. And it wasn't me. And someone was leading the meeting that wasn't me. And so at a certain point, I just had to bite the bullet and I just jumped in and stopped him. <laughs> and I had to call his name and I called his name. I don't know if you remember this. He, he didn't even hear me. He just kept going. 
So I called his name more vigorously until I got his attention and it kind of like shook him out of his, his um, prayer coma. <laughs> but it wasn't really prayer. So what is Jesus doing? Is he wasting words? Father, the hour has come, the Father already knows. No, there is a value to telling God in prayer what clearly God already knows. But I will say this, how long did Jesus spend telling God what he already knew? Yeah, just very brief, very to the point, very focused. Now, the Son and the Father are on the exact same page in this communication and this interaction. So there's a value to you talking to the Lord. There's a value to you catching up the Lord with what's on your heart. Not that he doesn't know it already, but be brief. Don't bore the Lord with all the details. He knows those things already. Just make sure that you know that he knows that you know that he knows that you're on the same track. And then start into what is really mostly concerning you. Now, what Jesus is talking about is an hour, a specific hour. He's not praying about a year. He's not talking about a decade. He's not talking about a month. He's not talking about a week. He's talking about an hour. And he keeps emphasizing this hour. And are we talking about a literal 60-minute hour? No. He's talking about all of the events that are culminating his life in the fulfillment of his mission and purpose for being here. And that's going to take the next day. But nevertheless, he's talking about an hour because the idea is it's a very specific and focused moment of time. And so he's praying about that. He's concerned about that. His heart is focused on the culmination of his life in this world and the end of his life in this world, but the end not just in, okay, my time has come to an end, but my purpose has reached its zenith of fulfillment. Now is the moment when the plan of salvation that has been purposed in the mind and heart of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from before the foundation of the world and all that has unfolded in history up until that moment is now culminating in these events that are leading to his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. What's the implication? The implication, and remember, we're dealing with things that were prophesied hundreds of years before this hour has arrived. This hour has been described in great prophetic detail by the Lord through his chosen vessels known as the prophets. What does that tell us about this hour? It's a very specific pre-planned hour. It's what we would call a sovereign hour. It's an hour where it's going to unfold exactly as God said it would unfold. Therefore, we can be confident it accomplishes exactly what God is intending it to accomplish. Now, if it's pre-planned, and it is, if it's prophesied in advance, and it was, what does that tell us about its fulfillment? The fulfillment is certain. And that means, if it's pre-planned, it's controlled. This is a sovereign moment 
of all, think of all the hours that have ever occurred in all of human history. And this one that he's praying about and referencing is the most important hour ever. There's never been a moment this important. And from that moment, there's never been an hour that was as important as that one was. The single most important hour in all of history. And it's a sovereign, planned, and therefore controlled moment. I say controlled sovereignly because if it's not sovereignly controlled, then it can't function as a true prophecy. If it's not controlled, then any possibility could have happened. He could have tried to go to the cross and not succeeded. Pilate might have changed his mind. The, the soldiers might have missed when they went to nail his hands and feet to the cross. He might have just been so physically sturdy that he didn't actually expire on the cross. All of those possibilities exist if it's not sovereignly controlled as well as sovereignly planned. This is one of the deeper mysteries of life. It's not easy to grasp. It's not easy to comprehend, but it is foundational to a righteous and truly spiritual understanding of who God is in relationship to this world and history that we live in. That's why even when things like what happened last night with the Ostrom family unfold we don't need to freak out we can be concerned we can spring into action both in prayer and practical expressions of love but we don't need to freak out in the midst of them because god is in charge and in control now if he is in control though does that mean that i don't need to do anything jesus knew that the Father had appointed this hour, and yet he springs into action by praying about it just before it's to be fulfilled. So, the sovereignty of God in our relationship of prayer is the foundation for us praying in faith and in confidence and in trust and in understanding of all that is actually at stake in the things that we pray for. All right, as I mentioned, I'm going, to, I'm going to save the emphasis in verse 1 that just begins in verse 1 and continues all the way through verse 5. I'm going to save the emphasis on glory, the glory of the Son, connected to and intertwined with the glory of the Father. And I want to, uh, of course, focus an entire study on that relationship. I, I think we've got enough to stop here. And uh, Lord willing, we'll have a good discussion about some of these things at the Spajari home in a few moments, but let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for John 17. I want to thank you that you chose to record this time of prayer between your son and yourself. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the glimpse and the insight it provides for us into your heart and mind and into the heart and mind of your son. And I want to thank you, Lord, how even the brief details uh, provide for us a framework for a deeper and more accurate and truthful comprehension of who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Thank you so much, Father. Please bless our hearts to understand these things in the way that the Lord Jesus desires us to. Amen.